All right. Good evening, everybody. Sorry, we're starting a few minutes late. Uh, let me just make sure the settings are correct. Uh, okay. So, as usual, the ground rules are you have two options to ask a question. If you would like to hop on screen with your webcam and say hi, you can raise your hand. That will be more entertaining for everyone. Or if you just want to answer, uh, ask your question by text, you can use the Q&A box. Please do not use the chat for any questions. Um, if someone is asking a question, under most circumstances, if they're asking a question in the Q&A box by text and you want to jump in, please reply to their question in the Q&A box. If someone has raised their hand and is speaking on screen, their question will not be in the Q&A box. And so only in that circumstance will you want to respond by using the chat box. Otherwise, the chat box is pretty much non-functional. Um, but if we have a sound issue or something like that, uh, or something that's not a question, you can leave that in the chat box. But I very often will not see anything in the chat box if I'm busy answering people's questions in the Q&A box. All right, so we have some questions coming in. Uh, by the way, you can ask your question anonymously, but I will give preference to people who ask them using their names for the simple reason that I want to make sure everyone gets at least one question answered before I start uh, get before I start answering the same person's question. Question, uh, second, third, fourth question. So if there's five anonymous questions, I don't know if they're from five different people or they're all from the same person. Therefore, I'm going to treat all anonymous questions as one person as I cycle through. Okay. Anita Morgan says, where is a source of chicken products? Chicken meat, eggs, broth, collagen. I'm looking for chickens, feather, natural diet of bugs, fish, meat, etc. Not corn, soy, arsenic, etc. Uh, well, you have a lot of options or you may, you may have a lot of options, or you may have a few options. Um, so certainly, you may have local options. And a good place to look for local options would be eatwild.com. I haven't used that in a while. I'm assuming it's still up. Uh, that was a great data and probably still is a great database of pasture-raised products of any type, not just chicken. And then, of course, there are the mail order companies that excuse me that i have uh, exclusive discount pro, uh, uh, exclusive discounts with inside the masterpass program most of which sell chicken products so white oak pastures north star bison although they focus on bison they i believe they have uh i believe they have chicken and uh us wellness uh although they you know, chicken might not be their main thing. I'm pretty sure they have chicken. Uh, so it's been, I kind of have a lot of meat in my freezer. I forget which I ordered where from. Um, but generally those companies will, even if they don't advertise themselves as mainly being out about chicken, they usually will have some chicken. And then of course, if you have a local farmer's market, you can see what's there. You may be surprised if you haven't been to your local farmer's market that eat quite often, you know, even when I, even when I was living in Brooklyn, I was surprised by what I had access to for pasture-raised animal products just walking down the street to the Saturday farmer's market. So definitely check what you have locally. All right. Thank you for your question, Anita.
All right. Will Estes asks, I read that bone is about 45% protein and about 99% of that is collagen. Uh, I've, I've read close figures. I believe it's 45% protein and 95% collagen based on the last time I read something about it. Uh, Will continues, if you're trying to reverse osteopenia, would it make sense to take a small dose of collagen with every meal? I'm interested in the efficacy of taking three or four doses of collagen spread out through the day instead of a single large dose. My thinking is that it might be like calcium where you want a small incremental amounts throughout the day to support ongoing bone building activity. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So I'm not sure what the best dosing is given that it hasn't actually been studied uh, fully. But I believe that it was estimated that in the people who have the highest collagen waste during collagen turnover, that they can run short of glycine about 60 grams a day. Whereas I believe the more, uh, the more conservative estimate of glycine requirements based on people that turn over collagen much more efficiently, which is I'm not sure exactly what the distribution is, but I believe that um, the let's because I don't know the distribution. Let me say the typical instead of the average or median or whatever. I think the typical person requires about 10 grams of of glycine a day, based on more efficient collagen than the worst case scenario, which is more like 60 grams. So if the typical person requires about 10 grams of glycine a day then that would translate to about 30 grams of collagen a day. Um, and then, you know, you might say that the maximal scenario based on the worst case efficiency in terms of losing collagen peptides or losing glycine during collagen turnover might be something more like 180 grams of collagen, but that that might be the extreme edge case. Um, and then if you want to evenly distribute it, that, through three or four meals, you know, you divide 30 grams by that, or maybe you provide a margin of error and say, okay, I'm going to try to get 50 grams, or maybe you shoot for convenience and you say something like there's 15 grams in a tablespoon, four meals a day is going to be 45 grams a day. That might be a a nice uh, compromise between a, a, a convenient dose to divide and the actual math, given all our uncertainty around it. So a tablespoon of collagen at each of four meals would provide 45 uh, grams of collagen. And so the rationale here is, and if this is particularly your interest, then part of what would distinguish collagen from taking glycine powder, for example, would be that collagen peptides or just gelatin when they're digested or not digested entirely into individual amino acids, they are digested into, uh, I think, tripeptides partly. And these smaller peptides are more efficiently turned into collagen than just the individual amino acids would be. And so you get the benefit of having a precursor closer to what you're actually synthesizing. And yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case that collagen provides the main infrastructure onto which minerals are deposited. And if you're trying to reverse osteopenia or osteoporosis, I would think collagen could be very useful for that purpose. 
Although I know of no RCTs with collagen supplements actually showing reversal of osteopenia or osteoporosis. But in terms of doing the things that are probably helpful, I would definitely think that that would be one of them. And I, and I totally agree with the rationale that bone synthesis and bone resorption is something that's taking place throughout the entire day. Of course, there might be cycles in it, but it's still going to be an ongoing continuous process. And you're going to want those blood levels of the collagen peptides to be continuously supplying the nutrients needed to the bone. Um, And that's best achieved in spread out doses through the day. And most, I would say that as a general rule, you should assume that you want something spread out as much as possible rather than the reverse if you don't have the data showing that it's okay or better to have it all at once because it almost always, wherever there is data or wherever there is a a plausible rationale, it's almost always the case that it's better to have it spread out. All right, I hope that answers your question, Will. Thank you very much. If anyone's wondering why I pause in between questions, it's just that I'm saving the questions in a text document because Zoom does not save the Q&A box for reasons that are completely beyond me. Okay, Heather Chandler asks, based on this preprint study, I have no idea if I've looked at this, so I'll click it open just in case, and I'll make sure to include a link to the study that we're discussing in the show notes of this episode. Um, So based on this preprint study called Iron Absorption from Supplements is Greater with Alternate Day Than with Consecutive Day Dosing in Iron Deficient Anemic Women, Heather, I've, meaning Heather, Heather has started taking supplemental iron every other day. She continues... That study suggests higher absorption with every other day dosing because iron supplementation acutely upregulates hepcidin for 24 hours. Can you explain the relationship between hepcidin and zinc? And would you expect every other day dosing might increase zinc absorption also? How many minerals are impacted by hepcidin? All right. I don't know if I can even answer this question, but let me take a look at this study. So... According to this abstract, in iron-depleted women without anemia, oral iron supplements induce an increase in serum hepcidin that persists for 24 hours, decreasing iron absorption from supplements given later on the same or next day. Consequently, iron absorption from supplements is highest if iron is given on alternate days. Whether this dosing schedule is also beneficial in women with iron deficiency anemia given high-dose iron supplements is uncertain. The primary objective of this study was to assess whether in women with iron deficiency anemia, alternate day administration of 100 and 200 milligrams of iron increases, that's a very big dose of iron, uh, increases iron absorption compared to consecutive day iron administration. Uh, so right away, I'm, I'm, what the language that they're using is, is uh, suspicious. So I want to see whether, not whether the, fractional absorption of iron is increased, but whether the total amount of iron is any higher. So I'll be looking for that as I look further. So secondary objectives were to correlate iron absorption with serum hepcidin and iron status parameters. We performed a crossover iron absorption study in women with iron deficiency anemia. There were 19 women. 
who received the doses that they just mentioned of ferrous sulfate, which I wouldn't want to take, um, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, iron, iron absorption on days two and three, and day five, days two and three for consecutive dosing, and day five for alternate dosing. Um, and so on day five with alternate dosing would be at, you know, after there were two or three doses or two doses, I guess, um, was measured by measuring erythrocyte isotope incorporation for both doses. Serum hepcidin was higher on day three than on day two or day five, but with no significant difference between days two and five. Similarly for both doses, fractional iron absorption, right? Which is the thing that I'm not interested in. Um, on days two and five, was 40 to 50% higher than on day three, while absorption on day two did not differ significantly from day five. There was no significant difference on the incidence of gastrointestinal side effects comparing the two iron doses. Alternate day dosing of oral iron supplements in anemic women may be preferable because it sharply increases fractional iron absorption. In order to provide the same total amount of iron with alternate day dosing, twice the daily target should be given on alternate days as total iron absorption from a single dose of 200 milligrams given on alternate days was approximately twice that from 100 milligrams given on consecutive days. Even if in iron deficiency anemia, hepatic hepcidin expression is strongly suppressed by iron deficiency and erythropoietic drive, the intake of oral iron supplements leads to an acute hepcidin increase for 24 hours. Okay, so I get the logic. I'm just very, it takes me a while, especially when only looking at text to really assimilate stuff like this. My question is um, whether, so the so what they're saying is um, hepcidin is a f- negative feedback loop for iron absorption. So if you have increasing iron status or what this is showing is if you just have a bolus dose of iron coming in, you're going to get a hepcidin response that is going to decrease iron absorption. Um, and that short-term boost in hepcidin lasts 24 hours. So the logic is you have a big bolus dose when the, uh, when the hepcidin is not elevated that produces a negative feedback loop lasting 24 hours. So why dose yourself while that negative feedback loop is strong when you could wait until the negative feedback loop is over and then dose yourself again? Um, I am exceedingly skeptical that this makes any sense in the long term because first of all, you know, this negative feedback loop isn't just controlled by bolus dosing of iron. It's also controlled by iron status. And so there, this is actually a very exquisite uh, system for basically ensuring that unless you have a malfunction in the system, as do 8% of the world's population with hemochromatosis genes, possibly higher than that, depending on which ones you count towards this. Um, Actually, no, I believe it's 8% total uh, for all the uh, different alleles in it. I'd have to double check that later. Um, so unless you have an impairment in the system or you have uh, iron intake that just no matter how much absorption you can extract out of the system is just not enough uh, 
to prevent or reverse anemia, unless you're in in those areas, basically everyone should just have normal iron status, no matter how much iron they're eating. Um, that's the logic of the hepcidin system. Now, uh, it may be the case that you get a 24-hour spike that goes away after 24 hours. Um, but let's say you start getting better iron absorption because you're practicing alternate day iron dosing. They only measured this two doses out. So what happens after, you know, maybe on the third, fourth, and fifth dosing, you actually have better iron, better total iron absorption. But then as iron status improves, more hepcidin kicks in anyway. Um, and so, you know, what are the chances that this is going to be indefinitely extended out to the 10th, 20th, 40th, 50th dose, dose of iron? It seems that the maximal, I mean, unless this is actually tested out that length of, uh, of dosing, it seems that the maximal benefit of this would be that you might reverse anemia a little bit more quickly. Um, but I, I just, I question how frequently it, it actually is the primary um, concern to reverse anemia in like, you know, to get a certain uh, incremental increase in, uh, in anemia reversal in four days versus seven. Uh, I just feel like this is probably something that's going to kind of wash out in the long term. That said, I do want to look at the data um, because I, I'm because I'm still confused whether there's a net benefit. So, oh my god, we're hold on. I got to figure out how to download this study because uh, PDF viewers inside web pages are impossible to, to control the zooming in. Um, where do I download this? Hold on one second. Okay, great. I cannot figure out how to download it from the website of this journal, but the almighty Sci-Hub has given me an easy access download of this paper. Um, okay. I'm going to go straight to the figures. So let me see if I can figure out how to share my screen on Zoom. Um, Uh, not sure how to do it. Okay. So the, um, the serum epsidin. Okay. I don't care about that. Um, fractional iron absorption was about 30. Let's see. Individual fractional iron absorption from oral iron supplements taken on consecutive day three and alternate days, day five. 
Um, okay, so for a hundred milligram iron dose, um, on the second dose, you've declined from this is individual people, they don't show the mean. So it looks like you're declining from, say, uh, 30% ish to maybe 20% ish um, on the second dose of consecutive day iron supplementation with 100 milligrams. Um, with 200 milligrams, you're going from uh, maybe 25%-ish to 10%-ish on um, on consecutive day uh, fractional absorption. But if you alternate and you have 100 milligrams, you're staying around um, maybe uh, 30%-ish or even less than that, 25%-ish for the median, probably about 25% um, instead of like 20%. Uh, this is a real mess. So one thing that I, I that I I'm not I'm not sure how to uh, screen share this. One thing is that the these responses between the different people are exceedingly variable with the 100 milligram dose, and they get less variable with the 200 milligram dose as everything basically gets pushed down towards um, pushed down towards a minimum of eight percent absorption and a median of around 15% absorption when taken every day. And on uh, when taken every other day, you do have some people who retain, like there was one person who retained 40% fractional absorption, but the majority of the people are having their absorption pushed almost down as much as with the consecutive day dosing because of the high dose. So the median here is probably somewhere around 15%. Um, and it's not that much different for the day three. Um, so their logic is that because consecutive dosing pushes down the fractional absorption, fractional absorption is what percentage of that one dose did you absorb, um, then, uh, then you should take it every other day but double the dose. But doubling the dosing for most of the people, not for everyone, but for everyone except three of the people in here, basically, um, doubling the dose up to 200 milligrams, even on every other day dosing, substantially reduced fractional absorption down to the point where um, you know the median fractional absorption has been pushed down to like 15%. So uh, to me, that means... To me, that that strongly reinforces what I was saying at the beginning, which is, you know, even when I was halfway through the abstract, I had the feeling that they're going to be looking at fractional absorption, and I'm very skeptical that they actually had a sound conclusion about total absorption over time. Um, but then after looking at this data, it looks like, you know, may, there are probably some people who are going to get a net quicker repletion of iron absorption on that protocol. 
but in the majority of the people in that study, um, and you know, it, greater, yeah, in the majority of the people in that study, just having double the dose on every other day by the second of those doses, fractional absorption was pushed down almost as much as it is with with everyday dosing. Um, and so they only tested two doses. So what happens after the third, fourth, fifth dose? I just find I'm I want to see the study before I waste my time with alternate day dosing. And you know, bring this back to a practical level. Is it easier for you for you to maintain a habit of everyday dosing or is it easier for you to maintain a habit of every other day dosing? Because I know for myself uh by far and away, the easiest thing for me to do is to have a little turntable inside my cabinet of everything I'm going to take in the morning, just take it all. The more complicated things get, the more you need a list or you need an app that reminds you to take it every other day. I wake up in the morning, half the time, I'm not going to remember whether I took it the day before or not. So I'm going to have to keep, you know, keep track of that somehow. It's just so much more practical to take something every other day, excuse me, to take something every day at the same time than it is to try to impose more complicated dosing on it that I would want to be much more convinced that there is a real effect before I was going to bother with that uh, greater difficulty of sustaining the habit. Now, the second question was, um, how does hepcidin regulate zinc absorption? I, I don't know the answer to that. Let me see if I can find something very quickly. Um, one second. Um, okay, so based on briefly uh, looking at PubMed, uh, I don't think that there is a significant impact of hepcidin on zinc absorption. And I say this on the basis that um, I say this on the basis that there's nothing on PubMed for regulation um, uh, between hepcidin regulation of zinc transporters. Um, and I think that I've seen people argue that iron transporters absorb zinc, but in the zinc field, uh, it's zinc transporters that mostly transport zinc in the intestines, whatever, D, you know, whatever the iron transporters might do. Um, and so... There might be a rationale if you could argue that iron transporters actually do absorb more zinc than people think they do, that the hepcidin is going to inadvertently regulate the iron absorption. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case because I don't think that um, I don't think that uh, that zinc is is um, I don't think that zinc is absorbed primarily or even substantially through iron transporters. And I don't see in a brief 
look at PubMed. I don't see any evidence that hepcidin regulates the zinc transporter. So totally uh, happy to change my mind upon looking at further evidence. I don't know everything, um, but I don't think that's the case. Okay. Um, started this session with too many windows open. Uh, okay. Where did Zoom go? Okay. All right. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. Um, all right. Thank you, Heather, for your question. I hope that was helpful. All right. And I, I apologize if... Uh, Hopefully it was useful for me to look at the study in real time. I know that was a little bit of a lag in terms of getting my response together. Okay. Um, I apologize in advance if I mess up the pronunciation here. Uh, Levente asks, I'm considering SAMe or acetonazole methionine as an antidepressant or add-on due to recently developed mast cell reactions to my SSRI and possibly all SSRIs, serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitor, I don't have a lot of other options. I'll try it either on my own responsibility or will work with a practitioner. But if it's effective when taken daily, what should I pay attention to nutrition-wise so that my methylation doesn't go out of balance? Is it possible that I have CBS upregulation? My homocysteine is quite low. Do you suggest I take a methylation panel test before I embark on that journey? What markers are of interest? I'm thinking about dosing CME in the zero to 400 milligram range per day. Um, well, first of all, uh, I wouldn't end your range that you're thinking of using at 400 milligrams. I would end it at 1600 milligrams. Because uh, there are there are numerous use cases where the dose for SAMe used is twelve hundred to six hundred milligrams. Um, now you could start, you know, at less than four hundred, sure. And in fact, I would recommend that you start with a small dose and that you uh, titrate up over time and maybe give a, a given dose a week or so to to see the effects. And, you know, maybe go up by, you know, if 400 gives you a, an 80% effect, then you might want to cut a tablet in half and, or, you know, I don't know if you have ta tablets or capsules, but take half a dose to, to go up to 600 milligrams to see if you can eke out the next 20% and see where that um, effect levels off. But if you get nothing out of 400 milligrams, you don't get any adverse effects. You probably just want to go up to 800 milligrams and then see where you start getting that effect. Um, and then, you know, once you start getting in the range where you have an effect, then be a little bit more careful about how you tweak the dose as you near either the leveling off point for the benefit or as you near anything that might potentially be associated with an adverse effect. Um, Nutrition-wise, I think the most important thing would be to make sure that you have adequate glycine status. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what your background is in terms of other issues, but 
uh, the glycine buffer system, which is how you buffer excess methyl groups, which is what you would have if you take a large bolus of SAMe. And by the way, I would recommend dividing the dose across the day if you are taking a high dose uh, so that you have fewer hours where you actually have an excess and the excess, the spike of excess is lower, right? Um, because basically what happens when you, get, when you eat, even if you're not taking SAMe, when you eat, you have an influx of methyl groups. And so there's some temporary spike in the supply of methyl groups and your body buffers that with glycine. So glycine comes in and it gets methylated to form sarcosine and then that gets methylated again, potentially, to form dimethylglycine. <clears throat> and the sarcosine dimethylglycine can go from the cytosol, which is the main compartment of the cell into the mitochondria, where the methyl groups can get salvaged um, in a process that basically ultimately provides formate that is used in the cytosol to form formal folate, which gets metabolized into methylfolate. Now, um, the the your, the ability to salvage the methyl groups on the glycine is basically limited by basically limited by the supply of unmethylated folate inside the mitochondria, um, and then and so there's basically some threshold above which in that influx of methyl groups with a meal, you did not have enough buffering capacity in, in place to salvage the methyl groups from sarcosine and dimethylglycine. And therefore, they leave the cell and if they build up in the blood enough, spill into the urine. And it's generally the case that some of, the, some of it is always spilled into the urine because there's always some of that in the urine of any given person. And it spikes when you get an influx, you know, in a study where you supply more methionine, you'll see a spike in the sarcosine dimethylglycine in the urine. So there's some portion that's always being lost in the urine. And the higher the spike in the methyl groups with a meal, the more of that is going to get lost. So, um, so the first concern would be that as you raise the dose, you spread it out across your meals more. Because let's just throw some fake numbers on it. Imagine that 200 milligrams is the dose that gives you an excess that leads to glycine buffering and some loss of methylated glycine metabolites in the urine. Well, obviously, if it starts at 200 milligrams, you're going to get a lot more wasted when you take 400 milligrams at once. That doesn't mean that the methyl groups weren't useful. It just means that the fraction of those methyl groups being lost was higher and so more was wasted. And so it's not to say you shouldn't go above the 200 milligram dose, even on a per meal basis. And remember, I made up the number 200. I don't know what the threshold is. Um, but it is to say that if you're going to take 800 milligrams and you can take it at two, two meals instead of one, you're going to get less waste out of it. So spreading out the dose would be my first nutritional concern. Um, second one would be making sure the glycine is there because no matter whether the dose is spread out or not, you are always going to have some glycine buffering when you have an influx of methyl groups. And that glycine buffering is what allows you to not overmethylate things that are not supposed to be overmethylated. Um, that could be neurotransmitters. Uh, it could be, you know, deregulating something, it, whatever it is. If you do not have control over the fate of the methyl groups coming in, by soaking up whatever's extra, then whatever the extra is, is going to methylate things that aren't supposed to be methylated at that moment in time. And so having enough glycine in the system is nutritional concern number two, because that prevents the overmethylation. Then um, 
I don't know what your MTHFR and all that other stuff is, but one, a third nutritional concern would be that you have to have enough methylfolate in the system in order to shut off the glycine buffering system when it's not um, supposed to be operating. And um, I don't think this is, for biochemical reasons, I won't go into detail. I doubt this is a primary concern here, but if, if methylfolate levels are chronically low and you are wasting glycine when you're not taking the SAMe and you're wasting methyl groups because of that when you're not taking the SAMe, then a bolus of SAMe coming in when a system is primed to waste and lose glycine and methyl groups uh, might aggravate that situation in terms of the glycine loss. Um, and so it's not so much that you want methylfolate to balance the CME when it's coming in. It's more that you want the methylfolate in place there in between CME doses so that you're not setting yourself up for loss and for inefficient loss of glycine and methyl groups in between SAMe dosing. Um, and so, you know, making sure that you that you have the RDA of folate largely as methylfolate, um, and that if and that you're more conscientious about getting uh, methylfolate at every meal if you have MTHFR polymorphisms that increase your uh, your needs for it. Um, that would be my third concern. Now, in terms of CBS, uh, if you have CBS upregulation, you're going to put the SAMe in there. It's going to methylate either something that's supposed to get methylated or glycine as a buffer. Then it's going to turn into homocysteine. Your homocysteine is quite low, so homocysteine rising is probably not a major concern of yours. Um, but if it does spill over into the breakdown, you know, increased homocysteine that efficiently gets broken down into cysteine, taurine, and sulfate because of the CBS pathway, then I wouldn't be too concerned about too much taurine and sulfate. I'm not sh sure that's a problem. And I wouldn't be too concerned about too much cysteine coming out of it. It's usually a good thing for glutathione synthesis. But uh, I guess the one concern I would have is that you have enough molybdenum because if you don't have enough molybdenum, then in the process of generating sulfate, you are going to generate sulfite. Sulfite is toxic. Sulfite causes deficiencies of B6 and thiamine. Um, sulfite increases, uh, increases glutamate toxicity. Sulfite does all kinds of nasty things and you need the molybdenum to convert it to sulfate. So uh, my last nutritional concern would be having enough molybdenum. Generally, you're going to have enough with 100 micrograms a day. If you're eating liver once a week, you probably have enough, but there's no harm in taking like 500 micrograms a day. Um, so not really a problem if you want to supplement there just to make sure it's not an issue. All right. Thank you for your question. I hope that helps. Okay, RJ says, I know you recommend life and extension enhanced zinc acetate lozenges. However, shouldn't we be concerned that they have four grams of sugar per serving, which could easily add up to 24 grams of sugar or more? Are there any other brands that you would recommend that have less sugar? If not, what brand of ionic zinc do you recommend? 
Um, yeah, uh, particularly if you have any negative microbiome issues from consumption of sugar. Um, so I know in my case, I had a problem tolerating them uh, for a while because I didn't realize that I have a fructose malabsorption issue. And I believe what happened for me was that I had negative microbiome fructose metabolizing microbes that basically just crawled up my whole throat into my mouth. And so for a while before I got that under control, which I basically got under control by um, three to six months of a zero fructose, um, almost zero fructan diet uh, and a almost zero FODMAP diet. Which wasn't fun. I mean, that basically meant um, meat and right and white rice. <laughs> with uh, you know, at a, at one point, I reintroduced bell peppers, which are low FODMAP. Um, so I mean, now like I'll eat ice cream occasionally and stuff like that. And so sugar, every if I if I overdo the sugar, I do notice that creeping back up the tiniest bit. But in general, as long as I'm not being really responsible with sugar. Uh, sugar doesn't cause that problem for me. But when it did, um, when it was the case that I was getting like, uh, I had a symptom in my esophagus that kind of, I'm not, I'm still not sure what it was in terms of diagnostic criteria, but it felt like there was just like some gas gurgling up here. Um, And so back then, the zinc acetate lozenges with their four grams of sugar dissolving in my mouth, probably feeding um, negative mouth microbiome bugs um, did cause a problem for me. Uh, but I don't worry about it now. Now, the thing is with the zinc acetate lozenges, it's, yeah, it's four grams of sugar per serving. And yeah, you don't want to be consuming, um, you know, 40 grams of sugar or 60 grams of sugar every day. Uh, but in terms of a cold, I know of nothing more effective to stop a cold dead in its tracks than to intensively dose these upon the first semblance of a cold symptom. And, um, you know, if you wait too long, they their efficacy really declines. Uh, and if you follow the label at first, the um, the efficacy may decline a lot. But in my experience, like if you sneeze and you think there's any possibility that there's a cold and you start your first zinc acetate lozenge at that sneeze, and then you kind of um, see whether you sneeze again. And if you get the sense that it's persisting, you intensively dose them until it goes away. And then when it starts to have gone away, you finish the bottle at the dosing that the label recommends as long as no symptoms come back. But if you have your, if you have your first sneeze, um, then you take that as the symptoms coming back and you get more intensive with it. So in that kind of protocol attuned to um, the progress of the potential cold, I find no alternative is more effective uh, than the zinc acetate lozenges. And so therefore, I'm willing to consume 40 or 60 grams of sugar for like one day or two days and then have it taper off. 
Um, granted, you know, this might, I might have a totally different attitude if I had diabetes, but from a cost benefit analysis, I don't think consuming 40 grams of sugar once for a healthy person is going to cause any permanent damage. Uh, it's not the ideal thing, but the problem is that all the alternatives, uh, in zinc lozenges have generally involved factors that decrease the zinc ionization in the mouth. And so they're going to be less effective as a result of that. Um, And I've seen some lozenges come on the market, but not any that don't violate the basic principles of the things you're not supposed to do to them or include in them in order to stop the zinc from ionizing in the mouth. And so um, I think from cold prevention perspective, uh, I I don't think they're replaceable at this point. And then for COVID-19, I I haven't looked at it yet, but uh, a colleague of mine forwarded me some case reports that seem to indicate, I haven't looked at them yet. I'm going to look at them tonight, but uh, that apparently saw some promise of using these zinc acetate lozenges in COVID-19 cases. But due to the many, or not many, but multiple mechanistic concerns where we would expect zinc to inhibit the replication of SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, um, you know, even though there's no RCTs for COVID-19 like there are for the common cold, uh, I think the zinc acetate lozenges make a lot of sense. And so from a preventative in the food and supplement guide for the coronavirus, I recommend using them like one a day. And then when you go out into a potential exposure to use them before and after. Now, I would define potential exposure a little bit more narrowly for myself now that living in New York City, the pandemic is sort of really pushed down to borderline non-existent levels. So back when the pandemic was, back when we were the epicenter of the pandemic, I was defining a potential exposure as going outside among people. Um, Now, with, you know, cases having fallen to very low levels and not going back up, uh, now I consider a potential exposure like when I go out to dinner and I'm much closer to other people than I otherwise would be, even though I'm outside, you know, those people are not that much further than six feet away and we're all there for a couple hours talking the whole time. Um, Or, you know, I go hiking and I'm out of state (laughs) or I'm, you know, in a place I'm not usually at where who, who knows who else is traveling to do that fun thing there. And, it's crowded at the hiking place or something like that. In those intermittent events, I'll treat those as potential exposures. Um, and, and that's partly, you know, it's partly because um, there's four grams of sugar in each zinc acetate lozenge. And I don't want to be, you know, needlessly pounding sugar all the time, but I also don't want to needlessly be pounding zinc acetate all the time. Uh, you know, frankly, like I find the zinc acetate lozenge is very tolerable for the payoff that I get from them but I don't exactly like the feeling of zinc acetate in my mouth. Uh, and I, you know, it burns my mouth a little bit. Um, and so I don't, I don't want to use them when they're, when I don't believe there's a good ROI from it. 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, and it, when someone comes out with a sugar-free version that actually looks like it fulfills all the criteria f- uh, for um, cold prevention, then I'll start recommending it. But the you know, serious problem is that these things already don't taste good. And uh, taking the sugar out is going to make them a lot worse. Now, in terms of ionic zinc, I do have to say that I believe that ionic zinc spray is unambiguously inferior to the zinc acetate lozenges in the sense that unless you're going to micro spray it every, uh, you know, every, every short period of time, um, you're dealing with something that is very much more intermittently dosed rather than continuously dosed. And so I think that you're going to have a, I haven't seen it studied, but I strongly suspect you're going to get less of a fraction of the dose of the zinc that you sprayed into your mouth, actually permeating your nose and throat tissue uh, compared to swallowing it. When compared to, um, RJ says I should start selling a sugar-free zinc acetate lodge. <laughs> Probably I should I should do that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, th- so the ionic zinc spray. Let me let me quickly take a look at uh, the one I have. Uh, I can see it. In my orders here. Um, one second. So I actually think that I've ordered a couple different ones and I made the decision mostly based on the ingredients and the concentration. And I have used, so the most recent one I used is Zinc Best Liquid Ionic Mineral Supplement from Wellness One, which I bought on Amazon um, and I believe that the people who make Concentrase, I, I forget what the name of the company is, but um, their their bottle looks uh, very similar. So I think it's the same company. But if you put in like Trace Zinc in Amazon, it'll probably come up. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure it's the makers of Concentrase, but I'm not 100% positive. But anyway, I, I'm not too concerned about the brand because I'm not that familiar with the different brands. And I suspect that it's largely the same stuff. Um, but anyway, that's, that's my answer, RJ. Hopefully that helps. Thank you for your question. Okay. Um, I'm being long winded, so I'm going to try to be quicker in my answers to, um, the rest of the questions. We are not running out of time. We still have an hour left, uh, but there are 23 open questions. Um, so I'll try to be more efficient and then, Around ten minutes of uh, ten minutes to the end, we'll stop taking questions just to make sure that whatever's left all blow through pretty quickly. Um, okay, Gary Krieger asks, "Could you please compare and contrast cataractogenesis, meaning the formation of cataracts, as it relates to the polyol pathway and MGO, meaning?" methylglyoxal. Thank you. And then he adds, are they independent or related causes? So I think I understand what you're asking, Gary. So uh, there's pretty strong evidence that cataracts are driven by glycation of lens proteins. 
And although the word glycation implies that it's sugar behind it, I did my doctoral dissertation on methylglyoxal, and I've made very clear in what I've written and spoken elsewhere that um, that's not true. Uh, that's kind of a misnomer, and that most glycation happens within the body driven by small dicarbonyls that are actually derived at least from ketones, meaning fat uh, and carbohydrate, and probably also released through amino acid metabolism. Um, and so in this process of glycation driven by these dicarbonyls, the most uh, prominent one of which is methylglyoxal, uh, they cause proteins to stick together. And if you glycate the lens proteins, the lens proteins stick together and you, and that's a key process in the generation of cataracts. So I believe what Gary is asking is, is the polyol pathway activation and methylglyoxal independent causes of cataract formation or are they related to one another? And the answer is a little bit of both. Um, you know, if independent, if independent means unrelated, then they're related, not independent. Um, but they are independent in the sense that you could have more of one. You could, you know, you could do something that increases one and not the other, or at least disproportionately increases one versus the other. Um, so the polyol pathway, I think the best way to describe that is under conditions of severe hyperglycemia, where you have too much sugar to be disposed of in the normal roots, you can, you can use the sugar to synthesize polyols. And polyols are, you know, in chemistry, something that ends in OL is an alcohol. Sugars are alcohols. Um, and when something has, you know, multiple alcohol groups uh, added to it, you wind up with something called a polyol. So um, the key... Anyway, polyol chemistry is not the key thing here. The key thing here is in the polyol pathway, you consume NADPH. And NADPH is needed to recycle glutathione. Glutathione is needed, among other things, to, to uh, detoxify methylglyoxal. And methylglyoxal causes cataracts. Now, that's not to say that there's, um, you know, that there aren't other things going on. I mean, certainly glutathione is also needed to defend against oxidative stress. And, um, but then again, oxidative stress might, this might not be the only way that oxidative stress contributes to cataracts, but oxidative stress increases methylglyoxal generation in part by decreasing or, or rather uh, decreasing the activity of glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate dehydrogenase or GAP-DH, which is the uh, enzyme within glycolysis that is responsible for clearing uh, what are known as triose phosphates, which is, you know, if you know glycolysis, this is uh, glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate and uh, dihydroxyacetone phosphate. So this is probably beyond what uh, maybe what you wanted me to get into, but just in case it's not, since I'm down this pathway already, um, 
glyceraldehyde three phosphate and dihydroxyacetone phosphate, which you can conceive of as basically uh, on their way to being half of a sugar molecule, um, they interconvert with one another, and the in, and the intermediate in between them can spontaneously dephosphorylate it and generate methylglyoxal. And that is one of the origins of methylglyoxal. As I said before, you can also derive methylglyoxal from fat through ketogenesis because acetone, which is a byproduct of ketogenesis, and with you know, if you get ketone breath that smells like nail polish remover for the ladies or um, paint thinner for the dudes. Um, okay, I know some. Some dudes might want to wear the nail polish. Some women might want to paint houses. I, I know. Okay. So um, acetone is metabolized in a two-step process to generate um, first acetal and then methylglyoxal, right? So um, now, uh, okay. So methylglyoxal can be derived from more than one pathway. And... Um, NADPH does multiple things. Glutathione does multiple things. And so hyperglycemia driving the polyol pathway may do many things. Um, however, they're connected in the sense that uh, polyol pathway means lower NADPH, which means less recycling of glutathione, which means less detoxification of methylglyoxal. Less glutathione also means more oxidative stress, which means less gap DH activity, which means more triose phosphates, which means more triose phosphates spontaneously dephosphorylate to produce methylglyoxal in the glycolytic pathway. And so, um, at least in the context of hyperglycemia, those two are going to be very connected because the polyol pathway via NADPH depletion is... Uh, driving both an increase in methylglyoxal production and a decrease in methylglyoxal detoxification, which means more methylglyoxal, which means more glycation of lens proteins, which means more cataracts. However, um, it's possible to drive the polyol pathway without hyperglycemia and uh, through uh, actually through galactose consumption. And there, one of the one hypothesis of one hypothesis is that um, drinking milk beyond the capacity to metabolize the galactose can drive cataracts, uh, which is through an alternative means of activating the polyol pathway. Um, but like I said before, you can, you know, you can, you would be wrong to conclude from this that okay, you should just go on a milk-free ketogenic diet and thereby avoid the polyol activation because you might wind up with more methylglyoxal as a result of more acetone, in which case that really has nothing to do with activating the polyol pathway. Um, so when the polyol pathway is activated, they're very connected. But uh, methylglyoxal does not have to be connected to the polyol pathway. All right, Gary, I hope that answers your question. And I apologize if that was more detailed than you wanted. Anonymous says, I love Gerald Steiner and drink about one pint per day. Yeah, I did before Amazon Fresh ran out of it. <laughs> should there be anything I should be concerned with about this? I is this too much for any reason? Um, one pint strikes me as very little Gerald Steiner. Uh, so a bottle of Gerald Steiner. 
these uh they come in um what, is it one liter uh okay so a bottle is one point one pint and nine point three fluid ounces so I guess it's a little bit over a pint and a half is that right um well anyway it's less than a, it's significantly less than a bottle uh so I mean I don't think so because I generally if I have it available often drink one and a half to two bottles of Gerolsteiner in a day um I guess conceivably if you're also drinking a lot of milk or eating a lot of cheese or supplementing with calcium or taking bone meal powder I guess you could get too much calcium I wouldn't really worry about it from one pint um I do think that the main concern with carbonated beverages of any type is that you have too much acid running over your teeth a lot. So I think it's wise to drink this in a way that tends to bypass your teeth. And I think you can kind of do that when you're drinking from the bottle. I mean, you can do it more effectively if you use a straw, but I think you can manipulate the bottle in your mouth to kind of pour it beyond your teeth, which I think is a good thing to do. Uh, I think it'd be, I think the wider the mouth of the jar you're drinking it at, like if you pour it into a glass you're, and you don't have a straw, you're probably a lot more likely to have more of it running over your teeth. And um, probably uh, the best thing that you can do for that is before you brush your teeth, make sure that you swish with water. Um, or if you really wanted to be anal about it, baking soda. Um, but I, I, my understanding of the dentistry of it is that having acids pass by your teeth in and of itself is not the biggest concern. The main concern would be weakening the enamel and the mineral matrix with um, sign, you know, bathing the teeth in something acidic for a long period of time, and then coming in with a toothbrush and scraping all of the weakened enamel off your teeth or all the weakened mineral out of it. Um, so, um, I, you know, I really, ever since I started drinking Gerolsteiner, I really crave it. And I think that's because my body has been wired to understand that it gets the minerals from it. And so I don't, I'm not really anal about this. Um, maybe I, I, maybe I should be more anal than I am. Um, but my approach is basically, uh, you know, drink it so that from the bottle feeling like it's, you know, not going in front of my teeth, that's going behind them in terms of the stream of water. Um, and then, you know, don't drink a bottle of it and then go brush my teeth. I would instead, um, you know, if I drank it recently, I would swish with water. If I drank it a long time ago, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Um, but that's that's the way that I look at that. All right. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Hope that helped. Uh, Victoria Feinberg says, right now, the discount for the company selling liverwurst applies only two times. I like the liverwurst. Do you think the discount can be made permanent? The company's U.S. wellness meets. Uh, yeah, I am in negotiations with them to make it permanent, Victoria. Um, but they're, 
I actually have to follow up with that. I'm not sure what happened with that. There are so many different things I'm juggling in terms of adding 50 new discounts to the program, uh, waiting for different people to follow up with me, maintaining, doing the maintenance work like this on um, on uh, the ones that exist. Um, but this definitely, this definitely is not only on my to-do list, but has been in the process of being negotiated. And you have helped me bump it up uh, to the front of my uh, mind and you know much more um, prominently in my radar screen. So I'll try to follow up with them soon uh, to see what the status of that is. Thank you, Victoria, for your question. Uh, okay, we have a, a lot of anonymous questions. Again, um, just a reminder that I'm treating all anonymous questions as one person to make sure that I'm not answering uh, more than one person's question twice before everyone else's question has been answered. For anyone who came in after the beginning, um, just know that you can also ask your questions by raising your hand if you want to jump on the screen with your webcam. Um, and if anyone does that, I'll answer those questions first before I do questions from the Q&A box. Okay. Thomas Phillips says, you talked about working with fatty liver disease in one of your episodes. You recommended a very low-fat diet along with choline. Can you use L-carnitine instead? Also, isn't this protocol you recommend more dependent upon an individual's SNPs, meaning the relevant SNPs for fat metabolism? Otherwise, wouldn't simply a calorie reduction to lose weight in general be just as effective? Uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Thomas, for your question. Um, there's a couple questions there. So the role of choline and the role of carnitine have nothing to do with one another. Um, Choline is going to help move fat out of the liver. Carnitine is going to help fat get into the mitochondria to be burned for energy. So um, first of all, I think one thing that's important to note is that you're going to get more bang for the buck by fixing the things that are wrong rather than pulling on levers that are working perfectly fine. And so the data that I've seen, and uh, you know, I, I haven't been as involved in keeping up with the literature on fatty liver as intensively as I researched it when I was in graduate school and I was working in a lab that specialized in fatty liver. And I actually read, you know, insane numbers of papers to produce um a very high quality review in the context of green tea, which is actually what, you know, everything that got cut from my review on green tea and fatty liver that was published in nutrition reviews. It was my doctoral advisor had gotten invited by nutrition reviews to do the review. And he basically gave the task to me. I basically wrote it and he sort of acted as the editor and became the corresponding author. I became the lead author. And then the multitude of things that got cut from that review wound up as blog posts, hence all the stuff I've done on choline. Um, so uh, one thing that I, that I think is underappreciated is that in someone with fatty liver disease, the output of triglycerides from the liver is decreased. 
the beta oxidation of fatty, fatty acids in the liver is increased, not decreased. And it's because you have more fat in the liver. And when you have more fat in the liver, you increase the pressure to burn those fatty acids for fuel. And so you do burn those fatty acids for fuel as one of the protections against free fatty acid toxicity. So if you can't get rid of triglycerides from the liver, you have more triglycerides in the liver, which can, which, you know, through cyclical conversion of triglycerides to fatty acids and vice versa, those triglycerides become an extra source of fatty acids and free fatty acids can, above a certain level, produce cellular toxicity. So one of the, you basically have every compensation running that you can to minimize free fatty acid levels by increasing triglyceride synthesis and increasing the burning of fatty acids for energy. So triglyceride synthesis and beta oxidation of fatty acids are both increased in fatty liver disease, not decreased. And that's because export of triglycerides from the liver is decreased. Um, and so, yes, if you add L-carnitine, at least up to some point, you have the potential to increase beta oxidation. And triglyceride output from the liver requires choline, but ketone output from the liver does not. So if you beta oxidize the fatty acids, you get more ketones and the ketones freely escape from the liver that will decrease the amount of fat in the liver. So it does have the potential for protection. That, of course, assumes that the average person who has fatty liver does not have enough carnitine to drive those fatty acids into the mitochondria. That's not clear to me because, as I said before, beta oxidation is actually increased in fatty liver. So you might get an effect from that. You might not, depending on the carnitine status of the person's liver cells. But under no circumstances will it ever be interchangeable with choline because choline is doing something totally different. And you probably, in almost every case, will be more likely to get more bang for the buck out of choline because export of triglycerides from the liver is actually compromised rather than increased like mitochondrial transport of fatty acids for beta oxidation is. And because it's been shown that average intakes of choline are not adequate to, to fully protect the liver and variations in, and choline is an essential nutrient unlike carnitine and variations in choline. Um, well, you can debate that. I mean, maybe they're both could be classified as conditionally essential. We do have some synthesis of choline. Um, but, you know, but choline is essential in the sense that the average person's choline intake is borderline at best to maximally protect the liver. And it doesn't take very long to cause harm to the liver by putting someone on a low choline diet compared to what they're usually eating. Um, so I, I don't think, I, I think you're overwhelmingly more probable to get more bang for the buck out of choline because you're addressing something that is actually a problem in most people and is probably much more of a problem in the general population, especially the population who has fatty liver. But with that said, um, I think part of what you want to do in a protocol is make it robust. And so you diversify the approaches in order to maximize the probability that whatever lever you're, whatever levers you're pulling, at least one of them is going to work. Um, and so what you really want to do is pull multiple levers so that even if one doesn't work, one of the other ones did. Now, if you have something with higher risk, it's different, right? Like if there's significant risk to pulling one of the levers, then you want to collect data before you pull the lever. 
and maybe that data is the individual's SNPs. Um, but if there is no harm in pulling the lever, then it's not that important to collect the data about which lever to pull, especially if you just want to see results fast. Um, and the, the the fact is that you know it if you had something measurable that would change with status, it's generally better to collect the information before you in, uh, institute the protocol so that you can know whether you were fixing a problem or not, because that can provide you better information about which part of the protocol worked and it can provide you better motivation to keep that up if you have evidence that you're actually fixing a problem. But if the problem is the individual's SMPs, the person's genetics aren't going to change. And so you can measure that at any time, even retrospectively, which dramatically decreases the value of necessarily gathering that information before you decide what protocol to do. In terms of whether there are SMPs that would change the protocol, uh, not really. Um, there's, you know, there's a very common polymorphism in the PEMT enzyme, which is required to synthesize phosphatidylcholine. Um, I think that makes you more likely to get fatty liver if you don't get enough choline. But I don't really think it changes whether you know getting enough choline would be, would help with fatty liver. Uh, you know, maybe it cha- changes the degree to which it works, but it doesn't change the principle. Um, and so I don't think that would change that. In terms of SMPs and fat metabolism, uh, I don't know. Maybe if maybe you could give me specific examples that might change my mind, but I don't I don't see why that would be relevant. In terms of calorie reduction to lose weight, wouldn't that be just as effective? Uh, no, it would be effective, but it wouldn't be as effective as also pulling all the levers that will ex- export fat from the liver. Um, the reason that weight uh, overweight is generally associated with fatty liver is because when you have more total fat, you have... Uh, well, there's two two basic reasons. So... One is, um, and these are these are kind of subsections of the same reason. So when you have more total fat and you start exceeding the capacity to store fat in the healthy way, you start storing fat in the unhealthy way. So when someone ca- crosses their personal fat threshold, meaning the threshold at which they start to develop health problems from having too much body fat, then they become less effective at storing fat. So there's more free fatty acids circulating. When there's more free fatty acids circulating, there's more triglycerides that can be synthesized in the liver. So the liver has more exposure to, to triglycerides. Uh, the the other the sort of part B of the same reason is that when you have more overweight, this might vary between different people, but you will always have more visceral fat. And the visceral fat pad is the one fat pad that empties straight into the portal vein, which means that all of the free fatty acids that leave it during the cyclical release of fatty acids and return of triglycerides, all of the fatty acids will go to the liver first where they can become triglycerides. So especially with more visceral fat, the liver gets more exposure to triglycerides. None of that ever, ever, ever trumps uh, the export of triglycerides from the liver. If you have maximal capacity to export triglycerides from the liver, it doesn't matter how much triglyceride the liver is exposed to. 
It only matters for fatty liver if the amount of triglyceride exposure in the liver exceeds the capacity of the liver to export it. Um, so yeah, weight loss is an important component of a fatty liver fatty liver reversal program if the person is overweight, which in you know 86% or so of cases of fatty liver, they will be um, overweight, probably obese. So yes, if that is a lever to pull, you pull it. Uh, if the person's not overweight, you don't pull that lever. You know, if someone's normal weight, you don't um, you don't cause them to lose more weight when they don't need to lose weight, because that would actually at least temporarily increase the liver's exposure to fatty acids unnecessarily. Um, but it's but that's not the be all. Even though overweight try tremendously predisposes someone to fatty liver, that doesn't mean that it is the be-all, end-all of fatty liver. And particularly when all overweight in the modern context is juxtaposed on top of a mediocre choline intake at best. And so it's probably the case that if that you could just pull the triglyceride export lever and improve fatty liver without impacting weight. Um, but why would you want to decrease the liver's exposure to fat without also increasing its ability to export fat, especially when weight loss will at least acutely and temporarily increase the exposure of the liver to fat, right? So yeah, you're emptying the visceral fat pad, which will in time translate into less exposure of the liver to fat, but you're also releasing all the subcutaneous fat. Um, more than usual when you're losing weight. So if anything, when you lose weight, that would be a time to put more emphasis on exporting triglycerides from the liver so that the weight loss doesn't temporarily translate into increased fatty liver. Um, but anyway, these are all just different components, different levers to pull. And um, they're not, none of them are interchangeable with each other. So uh, the I think the appropriate thing to do is to do all of them, not to just pick one of them and expect that to be as effective because you know it might be adequate, but you don't just want something to be potentially adequate. You want it to be robust, and robusticity requires having um, diverse diversification across uncorrelated things. Um, you know this like. If you had an economic portfolio and you wanted to make sure that if you lost money on one thing, you didn't um, you didn't you know lose money overall. Um, you want to diversify across things that aren't going to go up and down at the same time with each other. So here, uh, you want to diversify across things that aren't just all pounding on making sure you can burn fat. You want to diversify across decreased ex the exposure of the liver to triglycerides, increase the ability of the liver to get rid of the fat, increase the ability of the liver to burn the fat. Those are three totally different things that all um, help work together. And if one of them happens not to work, they're not inter they're not interdependent on one another, even though they help each other work. So that if one fails, the other two will will uh, will catch, you know, will carry the the protocol through. Um, all right. I hope that helps, Thomas. Thank you for your question, Thomas. Uh, 
Aaron Povman says, my husband's ferritin levels have been elevated on a few different occasions. Most recently, ferritin 603, that's massively high. Transparent saturation 18, that's very low, especially given how high the ferritin is. I told the doctor to get an, a high sensitivity C-reactive protein, duh, but they just got a C-reactive protein uh, quantitative result less than one. Would you still recommend an HSCRP? Any other ideas behind the ideology besides inflammation since the transferrin saturation was low normal? Um, probably, uh, so first of all, you did excellently. Uh, that was a phenomenal interpretation of this. Um, it's, you know, it's great that the doctor listened to you. Um, and it's great that you spoke up about it. Uh, but... Um, in terms of whether, so the difference here in the C-reactive protein high sensitivity is they report back less than one instead of reporting 0 0.3, 0 0.5. In this particular case, um, Aaron asks to clarify, 603 is still massively high, even though the range for males goes to 400. Yes, because 400 is massively high and the range is slowly getting better having been originally instituted to catch someone with hemochromatosis after they had metal deposits in their organs and organ damage from it, when a biopsy might not have been done to show the metal deposits. Um, so in that case, a ferritin of a thousand is pretty sensitive and specific for hemochromatosis as shown by metal deposits on the internal organs by biopsy. Um, but I think it's uh, ridiculously negligent to diagnose hemochromatosis after it's gone that far. Now, um, and so the, the, it shouldn't be less than 1,000. It should be insanely less than 1,000. Aaron also clarifies that he doesn't have the hemochromatosis genes on 23andMe. Okay, I don't think he has hemochromatosis. I'm just saying that uh, I think he doesn't have hemochromatosis because his transferrin saturation is 18%. Um, what I'm saying is that uh, ferritin as a potential indicator of iron overload um, should not be anywhere near the level that was set to try to rule in biopsy-provable hemochromatosis. That is, um, that is just profoundly negligent approach to setting the range for ferritin. Now, I think part of what has stopped, you know, I, this mostly is a problem of the binary diagnostic mindset of, of conventional medicine. So, um, I'm not saying that this is that this mindset is not useful. Uh, it is tremendously useful, but too many people confuse it for a reality when, in fact, it is a reality distortion filter meant to more efficiently triage people through various treatments or non-treatments. Um, and so, uh, nothing—you know—everything that is measured in the body is a continuous variable. So it is a reality distortion filter to categorize it across thresholds no matter what because you're making a binary pass the threshold or not on a variable that's continuous. So whenever you have a binary threshold uh, 
to categorize something into A and B when it's a continuous variable, you're distorting reality by doing so, which is fine because it's useful, but you have to acknowledge what you're doing. So in this particular case, um, the reality distortion filter they were using was we want to triage people between this result indicates, you know, is good to use as a pro- as a proxy or as a indicator um, that had we measured the biopsy or if we measure the biopsy of the liver, we will find biopsy provable hemochromatosis. Um, but there is a lot of you know, a lot of research has been done since then for why we would want to optimize the actual iron uh, distribution and iron metabolism and why we would want to use a ferritin of 600 or 400 or even 300 as a potential red flag of something going wrong in iron metabolism rather than waiting to the point where the person has died, you know, has to have something replaced in their internal organs because they are retrospectively diagnosed as having hemochromatosis. Um, So I think it's very negligent to diagnose hemochromatosis retrospectively rather than to try to catch it before it causes organ damage, uh, first of all. But then second of all, even if we're going to say, okay, we need to have this threshold for, you know, and that's why you've seen the lab's reference range go down and down. Like it's 400 now. Well, I don't know if all labs do it the same, but not that long ago, 600 and not that long, you know, so at some point before that, I believe it was a thousand, at least, at least in a textbook that I have, they use a thousand as a, as a threshold. So um, the problem is when we set, when we use the labs cutoff as a, as an indicator of the reality, actually it was a, you know, it was a reality distortion filter imposed on reality for the purpose of having a blood proxy for biopsy for retrospectively diagnosing hemochromatosis. Um, And so the reality is when a ferritin is 600, you can be absolutely certain that something is off from optimal iron metabolism. It's just not clear what it is. So it might be iron overload that is 60% on its way to 1000 ferritin and, you know, guarantee of biopsy provable hemochromatosis, but it may also be, to get back to your question, it may also be inflammation as you very well tried to fetter out. Um, And if it's not that, it's probably oxidative stress. So I'm not going to say that's the only other thing it could be. Um, And for the record, you cannot rule out hemochromatosis genetics with 23andMe or any other genetic test by anyone because there are um, a small percentage of hemochromatosis genetics that are are not in the HFE genes and no one has a panel for them. Um, And so it's it's improbable that it's hemochromatosis based on 23andMe, but you can't rule it out. But I would say it's probably not hemochromatosis because his iron saturation is low. Uh, And so, you know, I'm highly suspicious of oxidative stress, which also upregulates ferritin. I would have... uh, if you have testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet, I would measure everything in the oxidative stress section, um, lipid peroxides and 8-hydroxydeoxyguanosine and glutathione would all be good places to start. And uh, 
Um, F2 isoprostanes, depending on who you're working with, might also be a, a good thing to measure in an initial quantification. I believe F2 isoprostanes is done by the Boston Heart Lab. Uh, whole blood glutathione can be done by LabCorp. I'm not sure off the top of my head who else besides Genova does lipid peroxides and hydroxydeoxyguanosine. If you get a Genova ion panel, it will have glutathione, lipid peroxides, and hydroxydeoxyguanosine. It will not have F2 isoprostanes. Again, you can get those from the Boston Heart Lab. Um, and then there are, there are other things in the intestine nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet that could be looked at. But I think as a mini panel to try to see whether it's plausible that oxidative stress is, is the issue, then I think those four things would be the best place to start. All right, Aaron, I hope I helped. Thank you very much for your question. Herb Simmons says, how frequently can you safely use an iodine nasal spray and how long would each set of sprays likely protect you from corona? Uh, so the iodine um, in the uh, food and supplement guide for the coronavirus, most recent version I included, um, iodine is a nasal spray. Uh, <clears throat> important. It's very important to look at the um, percentages. And so... Uh, 0.5% is the concentration recommended. And that means that if you get a 10% solution, which is the most common one, you want to dilute it down 20-fold, which means taking one part of the 10% solution, 19 parts water. Uh, if you have a different um, percentage starting solution, you want to dilute it differently. And it's critically important that you dilute it properly. And so you should have someone double check your work if you're doing it, if you're doing your own math or triple check your work uh, because higher concentrations can, can cause damage to the nasal tissue. Um, but it, in terms of how often, um, so what I recommend doing is using it as a before and after in potential exposures. As I mentioned before, and when I was talking about the zinc acetate lozenges, I would define that differently depending on whether you're in an area of active outbreak. So when New York was the epicenter of the disease and there were 40 ambulances passing by my apartment in a day, um, I considered going outside among people in any context to be a potential exposure. Now I consider uh, unusual intermittent exposures to crowds to be potential exposure, especially if I'm going outside of my normal daily context, especially if I'm going to a place that's either out of state or where I expect many people out of state to be traveling to. Um, and so in that sense, uh, I'm not doing potential exposures very often. Um, so if you're in somewhere where, where you still have the caseload increasing and it hasn't started reversing, then I would consider doing this, you know, up to twice, a, up to once a day before and after you go out to do something. If I was in a place where the caseload was steadily increasing in one of the, you know, several states, I wouldn't be going out among people that often. I would be, you know, doing what I need to do and being kind of efficient about it and then waiting for the caseload to start going down. I don't think it's clear yet whether it's going down anywhere because of herd immunity or um, lockdown measures or mask wearing. I think there's so much unknown that I just would 
I would rather not go into a crowd than use the povidone iodine and the zinc acetate and all the other stuff five times a day because I'm always going out in the crowds. Um, so if you're using it twice a day because you have to go out every day and you're in an area of active outbreak, then I think that's fine to do until the outbreak settles in your area. Um, I wouldn't worry about it, but, uh, but you know, you, and, but, and I wouldn't use more than you need to, um, in terms of the milliliter amount, you know, you're, I wouldn't use a, uh, if you can get a rinse through your nose, I wouldn't try to get it cycling through your nose 30 times. You just want to, you, you want to use the, the minimal amount you need to get into your nose that lasts 10 minutes. So this is uh, this is not a thing where you take it in the morning to protect you all day. This is a thing where oh I'm going to the grocery store, uh, very crowded in there. Cases are increasing out of control in my area. I don't know when they're going to reverse. I don't know who in the grocery store has corona. So I'm going to rinse the nose when I go there. I'm going to come back and immediately rinse the nose after that. I'm going to wait ten minutes before I eat or drink anything. Um, that's the limit of it. Yeah, you can overdose on it if you're doing it excessively, but if you're doing it um, on the basis that there's a temporary spike in COVID in your area that will reverse and you're limiting it to uh, two rinses a day on the basis that you're only trying to protect against these ex potential exposures, then I don't think that it's anywhere near the range where you would have to worry about doing it too much. Now, granted, you might have an unknown allergy to povidone iodine or something like that. So it's it's not without concern. Um, but I don't think overdosing on the iodine is a concern in that context. All right, Herb, I hope that helped. Thank you very much for your question. Um, we have 18 questions and 21 minutes left. So I'm going to ask everyone to stop submitting additional questions. And I'm going to try to start going through these on a more um, rapid fire way. Okay. So Deb Stewart says, do the phytates in nuts primarily block absorption or bind with the zinc in the nuts themselves? Or if you eat, say, one quarter cup of nuts, are you crushing your ability to absorb zinc for hours, even supplemented zinc? Tough with a short eating window to get the nuts far from the zinc. Um, so phytate primarily inhibits absorption of zinc and iron. It does inhibit absorption of other things, but zinc and iron are the main concern. Zinc is the number one thing with phytate because phytate is basically the overwhelming thing that dictates zinc absorption. Um, it doesn't just inhibit the nut, the zinc in the nuts from being absorbed. It inhibits any zinc that's taken with the meal from being absorbed. But you have to remember that it might take, you know, five hours to effectively put you in the, in the uh, fasting state. But it doesn't, it's not like, um, it's not like all the food just immediately spreads through the intestines and stays there and then leaves after five hours. So you put something in the stomach and the stomach, even the stomach isn't really a big open sack where it just falls to the bottom of the stomach. It's really like something that where, you know, the contents are at the upper stomach and then they migrate through over 40 minutes, 20 to 40 minutes. Um, and so then in the intestines, you know, you got a, after 20 minutes of the meal, you started to get a drip of stuff in the intestines and it migrates down the length of the intestines. 
So I really think that you don't need to empty the small intestines to separate the zinc. I think you really want adequate space to be like, okay, when the zinc gets into the stomach, everything in the stomach has been cleared and there's a bit of a gap where the beginning of the proximal small intestine is not still actively swishing around with phytate. You know, so... uh, I'm going to say like an hour and a half is, uh, well, the way I usually look at it, if you really want to be serious, is uh, three hours after the meal and uh, an hour before the meal. That's, I think that's the simple way to look at it. And yeah, it's, it's hard to fit a window in if you're trying to do multiple doses of zinc. It's actually pretty easy if you wake up, take the zinc first thing in the morning and then wait an hour. Um, although coffee does inhibit the absorption of zinc, so it's uh, so that would also mean you have to wait for the coffee. Um, but uh, it's you know most people don't eat every three hours, so it, it should be doable to have the nuts wait three hours, then do the zinc. And you know even even if you only wait two hours, if like three hours is impossible, you're still going to have a, a lot of distance uh, from the zinc and the phytate if you wait two two hours. Um, Because again, it's not a binary thing. It's like everything is continuously moving. So I think you're going to have a lower, much lower probability of zinc encountering phytate if you take the zinc two hours after eating the phytate than if you take the zinc while you eat the phytate. Um, But you know, if if you're trying to be maximally conscientious three hours after the meal. All right. Thank you, Deb, for your question. I hope that helped. Harriet Knight says, I will turn 70 this year. Congratulations, Harriet, and uh, early happy birthday. Went into early menopause at 32, experiencing extreme fatigue. I've been told that I may have too much iron, too much calcium, too little copper, too little magnesium. What choices might I have to get rid of too much iron? In these times of COVID, I'm reluctant to give blood because I may be told that I am positive. I'm not sure what alternatives I have to deal with such a diagnosis. Um. Uh, I mean, honestly, I, I'm I'm not sure. So I personally, I understand where you're coming from, and um, and I accept your your concern. Uh, personally, speaking only for myself, um, I would be worried about catching COVID primarily by going a place where people were getting tested for COVID because those are the people that think they have COVID. I actually went uh, and got tested this week because I was in Manhattan at, um, you know, nine o'clock at night and looked into city MD and there was, it was open, but there was no one there. So, uh, I thought, well, probably not going to get a better chance than this to go get an antibody test and not in the meanwhile, catch COVID, uh, which I think I probably had in February. Um, so that's me. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if, if you, if you believe you would be subjected to um, quarantining and you know things forced beyond your will by getting a positive test, or you think it would be too emotionally disturbing, then I'm, then you know makes sense not to get tested. Um, but in terms of and I, you you can manage that risk however you want. If it were me, I would um, I would not have given blood a couple months ago when there was peak COVID in New York. 
but I would give blood now. Uh, I I don't give blood now only because I'm I'm busy, uh, but I, I wouldn't be too worried about it now. Um, with that said, uh, I mean honestly, I I I really don't. Yeah, Harriet says I'm an emotional wreck. I live in a hot spot near Chicago. Okay, totally understood. Don't don't get tested for COVID. Uh, I mean, in that case, living in a hot spot and being an emotional wreck, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to give it. I wouldn't. It wouldn't even matter to me whether I was going to get tested. I just want wouldn't want to be out around people. Um, even myself at my age, uh, all the more so if I'm if I'm seventy. So. Um, I I still don't really like nutritional management of too much iron on the basis that um, there's no way to do it that doesn't hurt things like too little copper. Um, Your options, I guess, are do home testing for random things that aren't COVID, but that might be a monetary expense that you're not willing to part with, you know, if money weren't an issue, I'd find a lab that would send me, you know, actually even that is a bad idea because uh, I'm not sure if there are any home testing kits that deal with uh, large volumes of blood. They're probably doing fingerprint stuff. Um, But yeah, I mean, if, if giving blood is just totally not an issue, then you really are only options for decreasing iron levels are, um, Eat a lot. Eat like a a low meat, uh, vegetarian diet, high in vegetables, nuts, seeds, and whole grains. That's probably your best bet. So a high vegetable diet is. Uh, Aaron Podman says, "Can green tea potentially help, or does this impact copper?" Well, yeah. I mean, I green tea inhibits the absorption of everything that's ever been tested against everything that's bad and everything that was good green tea inhibits its absorption. Um, but the thing is a, a very vegetable rich diet is going to be pretty high in copper and it's going to be high in iron too, but it's going to be very poorly absorbable iron. And, um, and you know, especially if you eat a lot of whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes, you're going to get a lot of phytate. Um, but you should, you know, when doing that, you should probably supplement with zinc. You could consider supplementing with copper. The preferred copper for me would be um, liver or liver capsules, which I think provide copper way outsized to the iron that they provide. Um, or mitosynergy, um, what's it called? Mitosynergy. Um, Mitosynergy. Uh, I'll put a link to the copper supplement in the show notes. It's Mitosynergy Advanced um, something. I forgot what the exact name of it is. Uh, that's the copper supplement that I prefer. You could also use any other copper supplement. Um, so yeah, high phytate diet with with supplemental zinc, and you can. You will also get more magnesium that way. You can also choose to supplement magnesium. You can get supplemental phytate, but I would prefer getting it from whole foods rich in phytate. Um, so like a low, very low meat, maybe vegetarian for a while, 
high whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes, high green vegetables, high diversity of vegetables, um, a little bit of liver supplemental, but not too much, no other meat, um, supplement, potential supplemental copper, magnesium. Uh, if you don't, you know, just if you're getting too much calcium, you can cut out the calcium supplement. Uh, if you're not supplementing, you can decrease your milk consumption, your bone consumption, or um, or your cheese consumption. If you're not consuming any of those things, they're very unlikely you have too much calcium. Um, and that should do the trick. I mean, I, I think that's your best option in, when you don't have giving blood as an option to get rid of iron. If needed, you can do, you know, supplemental phytate, but I would use that as a last resort rather than a first one. All right, Harriet, hope that helps. We are down to 10 minutes. So I'm going to try to go even quicker. I haven't been doing a very good job doing rapid fire. So Doreen Murphy says, I have two CBS gene heterozygous. My serine levels are deficient. How can I support this? Can I use IV supplements? Uh, you're probably just depleting serine um, uh, through the CBS pathway, through um, and uh, that's just eat more protein and consider supplementing glycine or collagen along with it. I I don't see why that would require IV supplements. Thank you, Doreen, for your question. Arne Per says, are the test recommendations in the current cheat sheet up to date? Any you would add in prep for a consult with you? Um, nothing I want to change at this point. And I look forward to working with you. Thank you, Arne, for your question. Lakeisha Allen says, Hi, Chris. Thanks for the session. The topic of absorption is obviously important, especially for those on a plant-based diet, including myself, who ended up with nutrient deficiencies, with nutrient deficiencies such as uh, iron deficiency anemia. Uh, or I think that's what she's saying. I use my fitness pal, but this only tells me my intake and says nothing of absorption. I know this is an extremely complex topic, but what do you believe are the top internal factors the host microbiome, their current nutrient, blood levels, genotypes, et cetera, which affect individual absorption. There are iron absorption predictive models. Do you know of other absorption predictors for other nutrients? Thank you. Um, so this is a gigantic question because what determines the absorption of any given nutrient is, is independent for that nutrient. And so it's different for every nutrient. So for example, Fat-soluble absorption, uh, fat-soluble vitamin absorption is going to be largely driven by a combination of fat intake and meal size in the acute meal. Um, even that is an evolving science. There's some potential indications that fat from a previous meal can enhance absorption of fat-soluble vitamins at a later meal, but I think that's going to take a while to really completely understand that. Um, for zinc, there are also predictive models and they're based mostly on phytate. It's a less complex model than iron because phytate is so singularly important with zinc. But there are also uh, 
generally meat enhances zinc absorption. Various amino acids enhance zinc absorption. Generally, protein, especially animal protein, but not egg white, but yes, egg yolk enhances uh, absorption of iron and zinc. Um, whereas egg white and plant proteins oppose iron absorption. I'm not sure if they affect zinc absorption. Um, I think those are, those are the, uh, then for the B vitamins, generally the maximal dose or excuse me, the, uh, the dose within the meal up to a certain threshold can be an important determinant of absorption. That's true for zinc and it's true for B12. And then for most of the B vitamins, I generally think that spreading them out and taking them with meals and magnesium are going to be key determinants of their absorption. Um, and then there's going to be a lot of other factors that are some, you know, sometimes um, too much. You know, generally, I don't think mineral-mineral interactions are that important when they're all at the same scale. But too much calcium at a meal has the potential to inhibit the absorption of many of the other things in the meal. Certainly, zinc status has an important regulation of copper absorption, not so much zinc within the meal. Uh, generally, the status of anything quite often exerts negative feedback on the absorption of, its, of itself from meals until status declines. Um, you know, if you're looking at metabolic conversions, you're opening a whole nother thing like um, carotenoid absorption and conversion to retinol is, is impacted by a big list of things. Like uh, I don't have I don't have time to go through all of them. Um, but uh, of course, in the vitamins and minerals 101 course, which you have free as a MasterPass member, there it's generally noted when there are things that impact the absorption of another nutrient. Um, I don't. I think that we're, you know, probably with the exception of zinc and iron, we're real far away from being able to use a complex model to predict the absorption of something. And it's, uh, well, calcium uh, oxalate is a major factor. I didn't mention that. Um, but I, I think with, you know, with calcium, we have like maybe 30 foods that have been measured. And so we can kind of predict the absorption from a food, but it becomes a lot harder to predict the absorption from a meal. I think iron just because uh, world, you know, globally, because iron and zinc are so, uh, have such prevalent deficiencies that there's been a lot more work on trying to model absorption. And we just don't have that level of data to drive modeling of absorption of other nutrients in an accurate way. Um, so I'm sure that's you know something we could talk about for two hours, but I, I hope as a as an initial uh, dive into that question, I hope that helped. Thank you, Lakeisha. Um, Forrest, so there are 16 questions. I'm going to attempt to answer them all quickly. We'll go a little bit over time, um, but I'll try to spend a couple minutes on each one. And um, I'll, I'm going to try to end in less than 20 minutes. And uh, hold on one second.
Okay. Forrest, uh, Forrest says, what are the top interventions for panic and anxiety? Nutritional was my main question, but anything else is of interest. Um, panic and anxiety, methylation factors driving the relative um, rigidity versus flexibility of the mind. I would expect... Uh, I would expect rigidity to favor panic when there are other factors uh, and also generalized anxiety when there are other factors that favor the things that are being rigidly focused on as panic or anxiety producing thought patterns, thoughts, or emotional patterns. Um, And then histamine, I think, is very often overactive in the brain, which at healthy levels contributes to alertness, but at over uh, overactive levels will contribute to generalized anxiety, and I, I believe, can also produce uh, an episode of panic when acutely and extremely elevated. Um, methylation is also important to minimizing histamine. Actually, so methylation is overwhelmingly important. Um, I do think that other factors impacting dopamine can be relevant in the sense that one of the the main way that methylation regulates mental rigidity is through increasing the pool or decreasing the pool of tonic dopamine which uh which favors mental flexibility and so you can also favor mental flexibility by increasing the uh, activity of dopamine receptors that mediate the phasic response to dopamine. And I think vitamin A is an important factor in that. Um, there's, I th- also think endocannabinoids derived from arachidonic acid in the classically understood ones, increasingly thought to be also derived from omega-3s, can also regulate dopamine metabolism in a way that is favorable for... Um, reduced stress response and increased mental flexibility. Uh, Generally, I think, you know, certainly um, B12 is critical to mental health. Um, Generally, meat, bones, and skin, like a balanced nosotail animal product is probably going to be the best way to deliver the key nutrients that are often missing, which is consistent with diets, you know, vegetarian and vegan diets being associated with those things. Although the interpretation of that data is controversial, and I'm not saying that you can't have a healthy vegetarian or vegan diet. It's, it's um, possible for some people. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's that aspect. So nutritional was the main thing in terms of non-nutritional strategies. Um, I think meditation can go a long way towards and other mindfulness techniques can go a long way towards uh, being able to step outside of your own thoughts and become an observer of your thoughts rather than a victim of your thoughts. Um, And I think seeing a therapist, reading, doing the work to understand your thought patterns and to uh, in you know, implement and execute new thought patterns can be very helpful. Um, pulling the gavel lever can obviously be helpful, as evidenced by a lot of the um, you know non SSRI drugs that are used for anxiety. Um, GABA has been shown to help 
decrease brain waves associated with anxiety and decrease the stress response in response to exposure to phobias. So supplemental GABA might be helpful. Um, and uh, and I guess maybe this is um, a little tangential, but someone with panic disorder is, is likely to exhibit uh, aversion behavior that can lead to agoraphobia. And I think that um, facing uh facing your triggers in a way that does not over trigger you um is extremely important to preventing aversion behavior that leads to agoraphobia so um so you know otherwise like if you avoid triggers um in life but especially in panic disorder you will get more and more triggers leading to more and more things you avoid. And that is a recipe for complete degeneration mental health. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, the optimal learning zone is always a certain bit outside your comfort zone, but not too far out. Otherwise, you can feel abandoned and that can provoke, you know, negative reactions. So you have to ideally work with a therapist, but if not, just be very self-aware in terms of what is too much exposure um, and yet also be very vigilant to not ever operate within your comfort zone, except when you need a break from operating outside your comfort zone on the weekend or something. So, um, okay. Forrest, I hope that helped. Thank you, Forrest, for your question. Okay, Will Estes says, whenever I take supplemental collagen, my bacterioides, genus of bacteria, the ones that consume protein in the colon rise significantly. This seems to indicate that I have problems digesting collagen. Are there any strategies I can employ to increase the amount of collagen I digest? Could I pre-digest it using betaine, HCL, and proteolytic enzymes, brewing the collagen this way for 24 hours before I consume it? Would this lower the value of collagen in any way? Um, I mean, honestly, if I was concerned about that, I would proportionally decrease collagen and increase glycine powder. Uh, collagen peptides are going to be better than glycine powder for stimulating collagen synthesis. But if you're not absorbing them and they're negatively affecting your microbiome, then um, you know I think you're going to get better absorption of the glycine powder and that's going to lead to better results. So I would try to play around with the doses of those. And yeah, you could pre-digest them. I just don't think that maximally digesting them is going to be sufficiently better than taking glycine powder to be worth all the extra effort that it incurs. Hope that helped. Will, thank you for your question. Anonymous says, I've watched your video on microdosing alcohol. What is the healthiest type of alcohol? Are there any brands you recommend? Um, well, I prefer red wine on a taste and tradition and aesthetic basis. Um, just for background, I think... Uh, between a half a drink and um, a half a drink to a drink a day is probably the net maximal benefit for alcohol. Um, and that can be averaged. It doesn't have to be every day. Uh, and that's the main thing. I mean, that's not a lot of alcohol, so I wouldn't be too worried about the healthiness of the alcohol. 
obviously the stuff with sugar and chemicals added is least healthy and traditional drinks like beer and wine or spirits are the most healthy as long as the spirits aren't added to things that are trash. Um, and so I, I'm not too concerned about brands. I mean, um, you know, I'd go for, uh, I'm actually like preferencing uh, less expensive bottles of wine now that the economy is not doing that well and I'm not uh, as willing to put forward $25, $30 for a bottle of wine when I can get one for $10. Um, so I, I wouldn't dwell too much on the healthfulness of the brand. If, you, if, you know, if you're real into alcohol and you want a real clean wine, um, there's a bunch of brands that market themselves on uh, you know, no, low sulfite or less sugar left over or whatever. And I think those are fine, but I don't think, I don't think they're necessary um, just as a general principle. Uh, so I hope that answered your question, Anonymous. Thank you. Um, Levente says, how much does cooking reduce diamine oxidase in pork kidney? I'm sorry, Levente. I do not know the answer to that. I would assume that it would destroy it, but I don't know if that's true. Arne Per says, any ideas why threonine might be low if dietary levels are more than four to five grams a day? Um, could be... Um, you ask, was it something you said? If you mean why I wasn't answering your question, it's because I uh, skipped over anyone. You know, I, I went through each person to answer each person's question once and then went back up to the beginning to answer second questions. So no, it wasn't anything you said. Um, I, off the top of my head, the two things I can think of are increased gluconeogenesis and increased conversion to methylglyoxal, um, both of which I would expect to be driven by a low-carbohydrate diet um, and, uh, and then of course, if, you know, it could also be not enough protein consumption, but if it's a wise threonine being metabolized, I'm going to be thinking of a low carbohydrate diet. All right. Hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Anita Morgan asks, I contacted White Oak. Their chickens are fed a non-GMO supplement, which contains grains like corn, soy, barley, and wheat. U.S. Wellness adds legumes, unspecified which ones. I'm still looking for a source, possibly additional online sources. Um, I don't know. I think uh, Polyface you could try. I know that uh, Joel Salatin takes a lot of pride in how he treats his chickens. I think chickens are very frequently fed supplements that are at least um, lures to get them to go one way or the other. I'm not a farmer, so I don't know the details. Um, but I can't think of any more off the top of my head besides polyface. So um, hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Uh, Arne says, I know I was joking. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Harriet. Knight says, does the Sperty vitamin D light box benefit those of us that get very little true sunlight? Is it better to just take D supplements? Um, I, I don't have any experience with it. I haven't done any research on it, but I think that getting light provides benefits that taking oral vitamin D doesn't have. So if that's an option, then I would use the light box, um, but you should test, test your levels and make sure you're dosing appropriately. 
Anonymous says, what are your thoughts on CBD oil? I, um, I don't really have any thoughts on CBD oil, except that I have talked to a lot of people for whom it benefits their sleep or their mood and anxiety. Um, I'm about to get uh, Ohi into the exclusive discounts program. And uh, on the um, request of one of the MasterPass members, that's also... Uh, Chris Kresser has done a podcast episode with them, but um, I'm I'm not I don't feel comfortable enough really uh, sort of recommending anything or discussing it in any detail because I just haven't done that level of research. Thank you, anonymous, for your question. Will Estes says I've read that taking supplemental N-acetylcysteine or NAC will boost glutathione production significantly. True, but if you continue to use NAC all the time, then long term your endogenous production of glutathione might go down. Maybe some sources suggest that you pulse NAC for short periods in order to avoid affecting endogenous production. Speculative. How does supplemental glutathione precursors affect endogenous glutathione production? No one knows. So um, those were my answers interspersed. So yes, it boosts glutathione. Um, it might bring glutathione down. Uh, it's speculative that you could pulse it to avoid that. Um, but even supplementing oral glutathione for six months was shown to not affect glutathione production. And certainly if uh, certainly oral glutathione is going to, to have more of a negative feedback loop than a glutathione precursor. So um, I'm not too worried about it. I wouldn't supplement with these things if you don't need them. But if you benefit from them, I. Uh, I think it's way in speculation, Bill, to worry about this, especially when six months of oral glutathione shows no demonstrated decrease in synthesis, at least in red blood cells. Um, and I think the pulsing is is that I, it's just getting way too into speculation for me. Um, we're getting to the end. Anonymous says, you mentioned your coronavirus protocol to avoid bee, bee propolis. Would you also recommend avoiding Manuka honey? The bee propolis is based on stimulation of interferon. It's a little bit speculative. Um, if I were to revise it, I would say that uh, you know maybe putting it in your nose or something isn't that bad. But I don't know that you want to supplement with it systemically. But I, I really feel um, not strongly against it, but I'm not using it. And I think the interferon thing is still a reason for caution. I'm not sure if Manuka honey has that concern. I've never looked at whether Manuka honey stimulates interferon. Anonymous says, is there any advantage to eating seasonally? For example, eating a ketogenic diet in the winter months when it's cold and humans in the past would have limited or no availability of plant foods. Um, I think it's speculative, but... Uh, there might be a benefit to that. If you know, certainly you're going to cycle in and out potential allergens. Um, you're going to increase your flexibility in terms of what you metabolize. If any, if if nothing else, you increase your flexibility to cycle, um, and that might be beneficial. Anonymous says, should postmenopausal women avoid iron intake and supplementation unless known to be deficient? Yes. I know males are advised to donate blood monthly or so to keep... Well, no, they're not. Um, you can't, it's not even possible to donate blood more than every two months, at least in the United States. Um, I know males are advised to donate regularly so to keep iron from building up. I wonder if postmenopausal women get iron build up like men. Uh, yeah, they can. 
generally it's not it's not men who are necessarily predisposed to iron buildup it's men with some genetic predisposition to that so maybe less than 10% of men um but yeah postmenopausal women with the same genetics will like men be vulnerable to that so yeah uh, postmenopausal women you know granted that they you know age adjusted they've been protected by menstruation for decades but after uh usually but if they have light flows or they are have amenorrhea, um, you know, it can start earlier. But when you stop menstruating, you essentially become um, like a man in terms of your ability to accumulate iron. Arne Pur says, is there any practitioner in the mold space whose work you like follow? Um, I would talk to Chris Kresser and I would see who they're recommending, um, in, you know, including their own practice. Uh, shoemaker, uh, probably. I'm not sure if he's if he accepts clients, but um, I'm sure shoemaker himself could recommend people. Um, but I don't have particular people to recommend. And last question, anonymous says, what nutritional or other interventions are likely to help recover from a panic attack or similar situations? Um, this was probably this was submitted a while before I answered Forrest's question. So that's basically the same question as Forrest. So I'll defer to my my answer earlier to Forrest on panic. Um, all right, that's the end of the questions. And we are done. Thank you everyone for a great QA. And I'll post when the next one will be soon. And I hope you all have an amazing night um, or whatever time of day it is in your neck of the woods. And thank you so much.